The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Matthew Rothman, and he is the director of quantitative strategies at Credit Suisse. He is really a, a fairly legendary guy in the world of quant. He very specifically warned Lehman Brothers when he was a relatively new hire there about some of the problems that they were looking at with their quant strategies and asked questions that they really kind of dismissed and laughed at. What do you mean we might go out of business? That's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. He's also been profiled in a number of uh, places. If you read Scott Patterson's The Quants, you can find him referenced throughout there. Pretty much the first guy to figure out what happened during the quant quake of, of 2007. We're just about a decade past that. And so uh, he was the one of the first people who really figured out how this happened, why it happened, and, and what it might mean going forward to the future of, of short-term trading and uh, markets and companies like uh, Lehman Brothers. It's, it's one of those stories of someone who was unfortunately, much to his chagrin, proven right. He was kind of hoping he wasn't going to be right, but hey, that's what happened, and we have all since lived with the consequences. So with no further ado, my conversation with Matthew Rothman. My special guest today is Matthew Rothman. He is currently the head of Global Quantitative Equity Research at Credit Suisse. He is also a senior lecturer in finance at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Prior to joining Credit Suisse, Matthew was the director of Global Quantitative Macro Research at Acadian Asset Management in Boston, which was running approximately $70 billion in assets. Before that, Matthew was the global head of quant research at Lehman Brothers uh, and then continued on at Barclays Capital. After that acquisition post-bankruptcy, he is the author of Turbulent Times in Quantland, which was a research note during the quant crash in the summer of 2007 that became the most highly distributed research note in Lehman Brothers history. Matthew Rothman, welcome to Bloomberg. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Barry. Um, so I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I, I knew of you from Scott Patterson's book, The Quants, and I was vaguely familiar with um, the research piece that you had put out, Turbulent Times in, in Quantland. Let, let's start at a very basic level. For the layperson, please explain what quant strategies focus on. You know, so much gets grouped under the kind of rubric of quant today that mm -hmm. you really kind of have to start to decompose it a little bit. And there are a variety of different quants. Um, you should begin to think about them via asset classes. Uh, so derivatives-based quants are very different than fixed income, general fixed income quants mm -hmm. versus uh, uh, kind of 
equity quants uh, versus risk modeling quants. Uh, and each one will come with a different kind of skill set and a different kind of approach to modeling. If you take equity quants just for a second, they also kind of come at a variety of forecasting horizons. And so they'll look at different types of signals and different types of things. So you have people who are playing literally in the millisecond range. Really? Doing like kind high of frequency, frequency trading? Very high frequency trading, mm -hmm. um, market making. Uh, it literally in, you know, trading's hundreds of times in the blink of an eye. Wow. Um, down to people are holding intraday strategies, to people holding several day strategies, uh, to people holding strategies that last months. Uh, and, and so, you know, you can think about them having very different types of signals and very different types of performance. But what they all have in common is that they're forecasting returns. And what separates a quant in my book really from a fundamental manager is that fundamental managers really try to understand the drivers behind the company. They talk to management. They think about products. They forecast earnings at the end of the day. And they think about uh, a, a company as an organic unit. Mm -hmm. Quants think about returns. Returns and what are the drivers of returns? What is going to make uh, two returns, two stocks tick the same way or go the opposite way over a long period of time or baskets of returns? And so we, we think about what drives returns more than anything and really abstract away from the companies themselves. So, so I oversimplify it as the fundamentalists are telling a story and the quants are crunching numbers. Is that a gross oversimplification or does it work? I think everybody crunches numbers. I wouldn't want to say the fundamentalists don't tell a story. Um, they're certainly, you know, trying to forecast cash flows and understand, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what are the drivers of earnings and revenues, uh, and then finally relate that back to a, a stock price and what they think the appropriate stock price would be. Uh, quants don't try to do any of those things necessarily. They try to just forecast returns directly uh, and see what can be those drivers of those returns. And overall, for the most part, think about large baskets of returns uh, or of stocks and how those characteristics and how those stocks behave based upon their return-based characteristics. So you studied under Gene Fama. Uh, you got your PhD from Chicago, uh, the really the home of the efficient market hypothesis. Can you square EMH with quantitative analysis? Are they similar or really, uh, when I think of quants, I think of using powerful computers in order to try and beat the market or again, are we oversimplifying? So I think the EMH is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts mm -hmm. um, uh, in finance and Gene Fama's genius was that he really taught us how to think in a very rigorous way about what it means to be an efficient market and what it means to beat the market. Mm -hmm. Before Fama came along, there were people publishing studies all the time that said they had a strategy to beat the market. I think that drove Fama a little crazy um, because the work wasn't very well done and the phrase beat the market um, was very loosely applied. Mm -hmm. And what Fama really kind of taught us was that you have to think about risk uh, and say, on a risk-adjusted basis, can I beat the market? And then academics have debated for years, what is the appropriate measure 
of risk? Is mm-hmm. it the capital asset pricing model? Is it the Fama French three-factor model? Uh, is there something else that we're missing? There's now Carhartt's factor on momentum uh, that is put in there. But academics have then debated, are those factors anomalies? Are they proxies for risks? And you know, we spent 50 years more plus in academic circles debating what it means to beat the market with a risk-adjusted return. Uh, in Wall Street, um, you know, there's been a generation of Chicago students and other students who have come to Wall Street, uh, Cliff Asnes and Crowd and many of the people at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and then fanned out uh, across the street in, 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 in many ways. Um, and what we've all kind of been trained in these methods, at, not only in Chicago, but other schools as well. Uh, and what we've really brought to bear is this kind of very hardcore, rigorous quasi-academic background to how we think about can you make money as a quant and what does that mean? Uh, and, And so, you know, we'll spend less time arguing about is something risk or is it a mispricing? Is it an anomaly? Um, does, it, does that mean the market is efficient or less efficient? Uh, but, you know, we, we bring that same kind of sensibility that Fama taught us, um, but we'll get less involved in the academic, you know, debate about risk versus mispricing. So let's talk a little bit about building a quant team. You're hired at Credit Suisse to, to help put a team together. What goes into that? How do you first begin to assemble a quant team? I think the first thing that you need if, a quant, if you're going to be a quant is a combination of data and technology. So you need to kind of go out and figure out what are the big databases that you need, where are you going to get your information, and what is your diversified uh, information set going to be, what you think your edge is, and go about procuring that. So you're, you're building hardware and software you're hiring programmers. Yeah, you're hiring programmers. You're... You got. You have to hire data scientists, uh, people who are going to really. It's an overused term, but people are going to really understand how to manage and curate uh, and store your data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have to find researchers who know what to really do with that data and where to find and where to find those hidden gems of signals and come up with ideas. And then you actually need people who can communicate it. Uh, so, so this isn't anything that gets put together very quickly. This is a long process. Isn't this it? is a long process. When when Credit Suisse comes to you and says, hey, Matthew, we want to build a quant team. Do you say, all right, it's going to take five years, two years? How how, how do you put them uh, into the proper mindset for this? I say you probably got to give me 12 to 18 months and think that I'm going to be in a dark cave mm-hmm. um, and you're going to see nothing from me and I'm going to be asking you for big checks uh, <laughs> and, 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 and hiring people and kind of lay out a business plan very carefully uh-huh. uh, and can detail the costs and exactly what I need. Um, and you got to make sure that they're in it uh, and get and get the ask because it's a heavy ask, um, but what you can get out of it is pretty cool at the end of the day. So uh, the competition for the really skilled fill in the blank programmers, uh, researchers, data scientists, uh, I think of, uh, about the, the just the giant collection of PhDs at Renaissance Technologies long before the rest of Wall Street started thinking in those terms. That, that's got to be, you said big checks, that's got to be a, a serious commitment made by the firm to, to build something like this out. It is a, definitely a serious commitment um, by Credit Suisse. Um, uh, and they understand that much of the world is really moving this way. And from the firm's perspective, what I believe they understand is that we need to be able to deliver content mm-hmm. um, to those firms that you're mentioning uh, that is interesting to them. 
uh, the way we deliver fundamental research uh, to the biggest asset managers in the world out there. We need to deliver quantitative research uh, along those same domains. And so, yes, it's a big ask if you're going to be additive to those people's process uh, and you know play with them in the sandbox. Is it is it that competitive to hire people? I, I was joking a little bit, but I'm assuming that these folks are really in demand and there is no, you know, you can't really do this on the cheap. I don't think that you can do this on the cheap, but, you know, you, you need a, you need a relatively well-sized staff, but, you know, we're not going to be Rentec. We don't think about that. You know, we don't need that size staff. 300 PhDs. In no, 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 no. That, I, I, you know, I think you need a staff of probably five to seven good researchers to be mm-hmm. able to produce something interesting. Uh, you need a technology team of three to four people. Uh, you need a data team of probably another two to three people um, to really four people to really kind of begin to curate what you're doing. So it's, you know, not crazy um, uh, in any sense, but you can be very productive and produce really interesting research on the cell side with that size team. So in one of your notes, you mentioned Quant 1.0, um, referring to the the quant quake of of the summer of 2007. Uh, What does quant 2.0 and quant 3.0 look like? What are the changes that that are taking place and will take place? So quant 1.0 really ended, I think, in the summer of August 2007, where there were rather simplistic strategies that a lot of people were using. And we turned on the light in the room and saw everyone else who was there mm-hmm. and realized that we needed to do things to diversify ourselves from each other. Um, and so we've seen that really over the past eight to nine years where people really started to think in different ways, not even so much about uh, forecasting returns, because I don't think we were all that similar there, but really about how we access liquidity in the market, Mm -hmm. um, how we optimize our portfolios, how we thought about risk, uh, how we put you know, factors together. Could we time factors? Could we not time factors? How you incorporate macro information uh, into your forecasts. And so people really started to break the paradigm in a lot of ways, uh, still within relatively traditional framework, but begin to really push that envelope. You know, kind of doing simple screening was no longer enough. So some of the criticism, and I'm, I'm pulling a line, this was actually an academic white paper, are, are quants all fishing in the same small pond with the same tackle box? Implying, hey, these were all crowded trades. Everyone was more or less using the same tools and pursuing the same goals. Was that true back then? And is it still true today? You know, it's one of the criticisms that get leveled at quant that infuriates me the most. Mm -hmm. Um, You never hear people say that to fundamental analysts, right? You're all listening to the same press conference. You're all reading the same earnings report. You're all talking to the same investor relations person. So therefore, you must all be the same. So I think it's one of those great misunderstandings about quant is that just because you look at the same data or studied under Gene Fama, uh, you must all be the same. Um, And... Let me kind of give you an example of how even quants can be different, even though on the outside they may look the same. So quants, not surprisingly, like to buy cheap things um, and the hope that they'll go up in value. I really don't know any investor who likes to buy expensive things and think that it's going to go down in value. Momentum investors are willing to buy (laughs) high and and sell higher. But but sell higher. But I don't know anyone who wants to buy high and sell low. No. Right? Not not a great strategy uh, to make money. But when you're a quant and you say that you want to buy something that's cheap, well, you're programming that. And so you have to all of a sudden be 
really, really precise on what you mean by cheap. Do you mean it's cheap on a PE ratio? Do you mean it's cheap on a book to price ratio? Do you mean it's cheap because of sales to price? What metric are you even using to define cheapness, right? You've got to program that into the computer. And then you've got to say, do you mean it's cheap relative to its own history? Do you mean it's cheap on a sales to price ratio compared to every other stock in the market? Do you want to do it sector relative? Do you want to do it country relative? What do you mean? Um, and God is in the details of a lot of these things. Um, if I'm going to look at a book to price ratio, do I just book values for differences in gap standards in different industries or not? Do I? How do I correct for book value under IFRS accounting, international accounting standards versus gap standards? Do How do I handle all these things? So even it looks like you're just doing the same thing. Oh, I'm using book to price. There can be a Tons of details. Let's talk a little bit about that period of, of 08, 09, because, you know, it's almost 10 years ago to the day when that weekend that shook uh, the entire financial firmament took, took place. I've read a couple of your older research notes, and I have to ask you the question, what actually caused the financial crisis and market crash? You know, I think the great place um, to start is Andrew Ross Sorkin's book, mm -hmm. uh, Too Big to Fail. If you're really interested in kind of the inner workings of Lehman uh, during that time, uh, he nailed it. Um, uh, it's, it's a great read. Uh, I, I couldn't put it down. Uh, my wife kept, you know, like nudging me, like, put the book down. You've lived this. Like, why do you have to read this? And I was like, oh, no, he's got details in here that like some of us were trying to find out. Um, uh, There's a at, huge at amount of research went into that. You could he, see in, in the got, specifics. He got access to and got people talking. That's really quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there was definitely some level of mismanagement at the top as as he documents. Uh, and Not just Lehman Brothers, but across the but, board. But across the board, uh, a misunderstanding of risk. Uh, and it's very hard to know when the music is going to stop, as mm -hmm. it were, when successful businesses have run their course. Um, if you remember nine months back, Lehman Brothers was putting up uh, record earnings. Uh, and so how do you know that it's time to get out of that business? It's so, a really hard call to make. So, so let's talk about six or nine months back. I read, and I, I don't think this was Sorkin's book, I think it was Patterson's The Quants, you had submitted some memos to senior management sort of saying, hey, guys, you got to wake up. There's a ton of risk here. And it seemed like you had a sense there were problems coming long before much of the street figured it out. I think you're being overly generous to me uh, on that one. I think that there were definitely things that concerned me. Didn't and you ask someone, and um, again, maybe this is Patterson's book, didn't you say, well, what, what are the contingencies in case Lehman goes bankrupt? And people laughed at you. They looked at you like you were crazy. Um, there were times that there were things going on that disturbed me. I'll give you, I'll give you a little anecdote. There's a great paper by a professor, um, Owen Lamont, at the Harvard Business School mm -hmm. and used to be at the University of Chicago. And he did a study that found that firms who get into fights with their short sellers – like 99% of the time, those firms end up going 
bankrupt. Right, they're in trouble if you're. They're in trouble. If you like got if, nothing else to do dude, but fight like, with the shorts, shorts. Yeah, like like stop, right? You know, um, and and he documents some of these, and they're great anecdotes in there. And if you remember, towards the end of Lehman Brothers, um, management got into a fight with one of our with David Einhorn, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, I recall, uh, yes, it was it was contested, and I did send um, that paper along uh, to senior people. And, <laughs> and, and I can just picture some. <laughs> so, wait, this guy's sending me a, a Harvard Business School white paper on arguing with shorts. Doesn't he realize our very foundation is under assault? I could just picture the C-suite response to that. Um, oh, who is this egghead sending me a white paper? What is this? Except, oh except saying 99% of these people do this. You're scaring me. Um, I was lucky. That my boss was a PhD from the University of Chicago uh, as well. He appreciated kinda this kind of thing. Kind of rolled with it a little? <laughs> uh, uh, he got it. Uh, and, and I think we actually, you know, I don't want to say we stopped fighting with him, but we did stop fighting with him. And I think we did start to concentrate so, so, on, on, on different things. We we had some very talented, so you're, uh, bright people there. You're literally on the way to London to a conference when you get a phone call. You're in JFK. You get a phone call. On the other side of security, hey, tap out. You got to come back. You go home to New Jersey. You take not your little car, but your wife's station wagon uh, with the presence of mind to, I got to go clear out my office. And you're described as this lucid, rational like you weren't, oh, what a shock, what a surprise. This seemed to be something that you apparently had thought out before, where most people more or less seem to be shocked or panicked or both. How, how do you, is that, again, am I oversimplifying this or? Um, well, I was certainly emotional. Um, I don't want to say that that wasn't a very emotional night sure. for me. Um, you know, one of the things that I think you know, behavioral economists and other people tell you is that the closer you are to a situation, the mm-hmm. harder it is for you to kind of take that step back rationally right. and see what's going on. A lot of Lehman management had lived through 94 and had lived through other crises and really were very, very, very close. I was relatively new at Lehman. And so kind of had a little different perspective. You had more objectivity uh, than, they uh, than, than, was... than they did ab- mm-hmm. about the situation. Uh, I think that was part of part of the difference um, and just being kind of a little just more unsentimental. Objective. Let's talk a little bit about the quant crash of 2007. I love the story about you and Osriel Levin figuring out what actually had happened long before anybody else uh, was was this over sushi or Chinese food in San Francisco? Sushi. It was okay. A, it was a sushi dinner. Um, I've always felt badly that um, uh, Osra Levine, uh, to his friends, is known as Uzi. You know, he really should have been the co-author with me on that paper and deserves every bit of credit. Um, Where was he working at the time? What was he a doing? A place called Menta Capital. Uh, okay. He's still there. Uh, and he ran, he used to run BGI's hedge fund, mm-hmm. um, main um, um, you know um, main hedge fund uh, over there, and he had started on his own. Uh, and you know, I had been out that day seeing clients and watching the blow up uh, happening, and like we both were just sitting there over sushi, um, and like just kind of piecing together what would have caused everyone to unwind. Um, and it was literally just over sushi dinner, just arguing it back and forth and kind of putting together what the story had to have been. So tell that story because it's fascinating how you guys deduce leverage, multi-strat, et cetera. Yeah. So the story that we, that, 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 that we kind of came up with um, and still holds up to this day, no one's, you know, we can't prove it, um, but 
no one has a better story, um, and you know it's kind of be- become accepted wisdom, is that there were a number of multi-strat quantitative hedge funds that held um, positions in uh, subprime mortgages uh, and fixed income mortgages of low credit that were taking losses. This was in the summer of 2007, uh, where you had the uh, managers at Bear Stearns who were running those fixed income portfolios. Ray Siafi and, uh, and I'm trying to remember. The um, I don't name. remember the names, but, but they, that was June. You know, that kind of wobbled. That, right? that that started wobbling, right? And by Ju- in mid July, you saw a number of other quant. Um, you saw the, the, the fixed income cre- distressed credit market was in distress, mm-hmm. um, and it was illiquid, and people were beginning to receive margin calls uh, on those on those books. They were they were highly levered, and um, man and, and and prime brokers and others were coming to people who, were, who held those assets and said, "We need more collateral so, to support those books." So highly levered and illiquid, not a great combination. Not a great combination. And the last thing you want to do if you're holding that portfolio is actually liquidate those assets because the marks aren't probably really at market. They're at right. some discount m- discount to market. Yeah. But when you try to move that, the mark's going to get set lower right. as you try to sell an illiquid asset, right? For that, you know, it's going to be marked lower. Then the whole portfolio gets marked lower. You're going to need to raise more collateral for the discount uh, of of the underlying assets. Sounds like portfolio insurance. Sounds like, exactly. And so the last, if so, if you're smart and you realize this, you're not going to, if you, to meet the margin call, you're not going to sell that asset. Mm -hmm. You're going to go sell a very highly liquid asset. Because you're taking a much smaller haircut on that. If any at all, right? right. It's a liquid portfolio. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the most liquid assets uh, in the world? Probably U.S. large cap mm-hmm. equities. So if you're a multi-strat firm, where are you going to go raise that equity? You're going to go liquidate, and many of these were quants, you're going to go liquidate your quant portfolio. Mm-hmm. And we saw that, if you go back and look at the data, that a lot of the quants were losing money throughout most of July. Uh, a well-known quant manager ha- has come out and said, like, we lost money 21 out of the 22 days in July. But it was just a kind of steady trickle. Like, it wasn't really bad. But then it really started to pick up momentum, as it were, in um, August. And people started, and we really think it's because the liquidations and the margin calls became much more severe. And other people were noticing that their, be- their portfolios were misbehaving. And so they started to take down, who didn't have any exposure necessarily to these subprime assets, they saw their quant portfolios not behaving the, the way they wanted. And so they started to take down risk because their models were misbehaving. Which and they is didn't fascinating because it just shows you how interrelated everything is. That's right. Hey, we don't have any subprime exposure. Doesn't matter. People who do are liquidating things that you have exposure to. And so that's how con- that is the definition of contagion, mm-hmm. right? Where something that you're not actually exposed to begins to affect another part of the market. And you and Uzi are putting this together pretty much in real time in early August. We're putting this literally together over a three to four hour dinner of sushi in a restaurant in California. With some sake, um, <laughs> and you closed the joint up. You were there until they closed kicked it, you out. Until they kicked us out, and we kind of, you know, you know, we didn't exactly have the story. We couldn't prove it, but it all made sense, um, and kind of got the story. And then I went back to my hotel room uh, and realized that the rest of the trip that I was planning in California 
was out the window. What I needed to do was write this all up. And so that next morning I called and told all my salespeople, cancel my trip, um, cancel all my client meetings. Um, this is, you know, I'm going into the San Francisco office and we're writing this note as our quant world is melting down. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, stayed up until literally, I mean, I got there at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and published that note. Um, walk, I remember walking back from the San Francisco office after I'd hit the send button on that note and knowing that I had done, it was almost like the Jerry Maguire moment, like when you put that out there kind of saying like, oh my God, what if I just hit the send button on um, and woke up to the most read note uh, in really the history of Wall Turbulent Street. Turbulent times in Quantland, really. Yeah. It just, it, it, the timing was perfect and you guys figured out, uh, and we if, saw if not the best explanation, certainly no one's come along with a better explanation since. I think people, it is pretty much, uh, I think, received as the explanation So I, uh, I, at, at this point. There's a line, I'm not sure if this is from that uh, or another one of your writings, events that model only predicted would happen once in 10,000 years happen every day for three days. So in other words, wildly gonna... improbable things are happening way too frequently. I think that's going to be on my tombstone. <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, some people have actually criticized me as not understanding that returns are not normally distributed for that statement. Of course, what I meant was that things were misbehaving on our models and our models were misspecified and wrong. Um, and obviously, we did not have the appropriate distribution of returns if that's what our models were saying. Um, I clearly understand statistics, and clearly it was it was a it was a pithy way of trying to say our models are absolutely wrong if that's what we're predicting and we're seeing them three days in a row. We don't understand what's going on. Our models are wrong. So, so I love the um, expression: all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, and your models had previously proven to be useful. What was wrong with all of the quant models? Some people were blaming Gaussian couplers and other people were saying, no, this is strictly a, a subprime derivative CDO um, contagion. Where did the models, where were the models off? I think where the models were off is in understanding liquidity. Mm -hmm. um, wasn't appropriately kind of factored into that. And notions of crowding. Uh, we're very, very, we're just not in the models, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know how to think about that. We didn't know how to think about crowding risk. Uh, we didn't know really how to think about liquidity the way we do today. We held more concentrated positions uh, uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. While we might have only hold a fraction of average daily volume, ADV, uh, and traded those carefully, we let those positions build up too mm -hmm. much as a portion of our book. Um, we didn't spread the bets out enough across enough different stocks, and we ran with just way too much leverage. So, so there's no doubt leverage is always a giant problem whenever there's headache, but you had done some subsequent research that found, hey, the correlations were much lower than everybody believed. Everybody that was talking about crowded trades assumed people were all, if not in the exact same investments, in such similar asset um, uh, holdings that it didn't make a difference, but you found the correlation was something around 20%. Well, I th I th what I tried to do was decompose 
why we were into crowded trades. Mm -hmm. So there, I don't think there's a denying that quants were holding the same portfolios. The received wisdom was that it was because our return prediction models, our alpha models, were all the same, that we mm -hmm. were looking in this, we were fishing for alpha in the same pond. Right. And what I actually managed to do was convince uh, the biggest quant firms out there that they should actually give me the outputs of their models for a period of a year. And? And they did. And so That's they, a lot of trust for someone to say, all right, here's the crown jewels. Try not to let anybody else get a hold of That them. was the relationships that I had with my clients, was mm -hmm. that they actually gave me the outputs to their models because we all thought this was a really important problem to figure out of what drove us into these same trades. And what I saw was that the actual outputs of the models weren't all that correlated. It wasn't an mm. alpha modeling problem. People, as because we talked about before, have different ways of predicting returns. If you and I were to say, what is the stock that's going to have the highest return over the next you know, six months, or ask your listeners, right? there'd be a lot of people who would have very different opinions on a stock like Netflix or Tesla um, or Amazon, um, any of the FANG stocks, any of those kind of things. We might all have very different forecasts. But if we were to ask what are the most risky stocks, we probably list a lot of those names. You know, mm -hmm. the dispersion and outcome, we don't know which way it's going to go, but we can agree it's risky. We have been speaking with Matthew Rothman. He is currently the head of quantitative equity strategies at Credit Suisse. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Matthew, thank you for being so generous with your time. I, I find this stuff fascinating. I was about to ask you, um, you mentioned Andrew Ross Sorkin's book, Too Big to Fail. Um, did you read Patterson's book, The Quants? I did. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> I found it fascinating because I love the characters. It's it's all my favorite, Asness and Sim Jim Simons of Renaissance and Ed Thorpe. You're mentioned in it. A number yep. of people are in it. I found that to be a really fascinating tale. What What was your take on that? You, I'm, I apologize for ambushing no, you. No, on this no, also. no, no. It, it, it's fine. Um, my frustrations with the book are that I found it a little overridden, um, okay. and a little over sensationalized. So here's uh, what I have to <laughs> I have to throw your own words back at you. Are you closer to that narrative than you are to the Sorkin narrative? Maybe I I I read I you know I know some of the characters in there and, and 
Um, you know, some of them do have tempers, but like I, you know, I read the, the poker early game teams, that the, starts. Yeah, it's when know. I was looking at them, like, what is this about? It was yes, and you know, we th- those of us who are close to it, and you see, I mean, there's a detail in the book just for as a small example that drives me crazy. Yeah, where Scott has me coming off a red eye flight from New York to San Francisco. There is no; it's the other way around. There are no red eye flights. <laughs> It's San Francisco to New York, New York. and it's, right. it's barely a red eye because it's five and a half hours. hours right. It's and not so, like you're going to London and it's eight hours you can exactly. sleep. Exactly. And so, and so it's just little things like that, mm-hmm. which you just pick up and you're like, he's got the details wrong. Right. And when someone starts getting the details wrong on little things that are so obvious, right. you start distrusting some of the other stuff I, where, where, I, it's harder, where, where it's harder to see. You're, you're bu- bursting my balloon. I, I just love that book so much. I, 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 but I, I can nothing, understand. It, 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 it's someone who was so close to the story and so close to the characters mm-hmm. that you see the embellishments. Sure. So, and and if you know some of these people, if you know, so how I know Cliff Asnes today versus that book, they're two very different characters. Like the Asnes character in the book is a little harder and a little like I know him as this this mischievous guy with a wicked wit. I mean, he is just outright hilarious. He's a funny guy. He's he has a great sense of humor, great personality. Doesn't come across that way in the book. You, you know, he he is um, a little hard ass in the book. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that he's look at the company he's built and, and all of those things. I'm sure he drives people to mm-hmm. produce results. Uh, I would expect nothing else of a you know a multi billionaire. Uh, you know, who had the vision to build the, the the you know the incredible company that he and his partners uh, ha- have built. Um, but you're right, the charming side of Cliff right. does not come through that the witty the you know hilarious um charismatic um you know part that makes cliff the legend that he is doesn't shine through in that book and so like those are the types of things that 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 bother me um uh about it but it's what's fascinating about it is to me is there's this thread that runs through throughout that whole book and we'll get to books a little later how quant was sort of disdained in the big people like almost I don't want to say laughed at but kind of like yeah put the numbers geeks in the basement we're actually running a, a real firm here it almost starts like that and ends up in oh Quan is taking over all of Wall Street and you people who didn't understand or appreciate it well you missed the bus and here's the next big thing like, th- that thread is fascinating and I think that's even more true today mm-hmm. um, than it ever has been um, you know today you shouldn't be putting Excel uh, on, on your resume, uh, you know, you you know that you know or, a, a word, uh, right? You know that's a given. Like you know, today if you want to stand out, you know, you better be talking about how you can program in Python, uh, in R, uh, and you know, you know, you know all those sets of skills that you that you have, you know, if you really want to be successful. So I think on on Wall Street today and kind of going forward. So uh, before I get to the standard questions, there are a couple of things I missed that I want to come back to. Um, and I have to stop saying um, uh, Holt H O L T is a, a a pretty substantial product at Credit Suisse. Can can you explain exactly what that is? Because when sure. I started researching, I'm like, wow, how have I never heard of this? This is uh, <laughs> it's a great product. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a great product. Um, you know, it's not part of my uh, domain. 
Um, there's a there's a team there that has been doing and that's been together for close to 20, uh, 25 years, maybe more than that. Pretty successful. Uh, very successful. Uh, and what they've really done is collected accounting data uh, mm-hmm. for companies over that 20, 25 plus year period and figured out how to normalize it uh, and really begin to look at companies across different industries and different countries and put them all on an equal footing um, hmm. uh, and then really look at what are take those cash flows and look what really is the return on capital um, for these companies and the implied growth rates uh, for them and kind of come back and then look at what is then being implied for uh, what the appropriate stock uh, valuation uh, should be, and so it's a wonderful tool that people that's very awesome. interactive, um, and that people can really kind of compare companies all across the globe, uh, really on an apples to apples basis, and look at it from a fundamental uh, accounting perspective. It's very very powerful and has a wide following across the investor base. And, and I, I assume a lot of people just are unfamiliar with it. I, I was looking at it saying. How have I not seen anything mentioned of this in in the media? It was pretty. Uh, pretty we'll set you up with a trial if you like. Say again. <laughs> we'll set you up with a trial anytime you like. I uh, I I could get lost in that. I'll have my head of research stuff like that. <laughs> so since the quant crash in 07, we've seen two really interesting changes in the market. One has been, I don't want to call it the rise of indexing because that's been going on for 40 years, but certainly a broader mom-and-pop embraceive indexing, and then second, at the same time, uh, really volatility has fallen off the, uh, off the cliff. How have those two factors impacted the ability for quants to make money in the market? Yeah. I mean, I, the way I have really kind of understood the rise of, of, of indexing, and I'm probably not unique in my insight here, is that in 2008, what you would really, what investors in 2009 really had hoped for was managers that were going to be able to give them some level of insurance uh, and and protect them in those moments in time, and that just didn't happen. Um, and so I think people have been driven by lower fees, uh, and I think the fiduciaries, the plan sponsors who are managing uh, many of the retirement accounts uh, and pension funds uh, have been disappointed by that fact uh, as, as well. And so you've seen this move towards lower fee uh, types of investing uh, that can deliver you you know, what seems like to be the same kind of outcome uh, mm-hmm. for, for, for a lesser price. Uh, and and so investors have definitely flocked to that. And you've seen, uh, even this past year, the funds that have actually attracted the the greatest inflows have not only been passive, but the absolute lowest priced passive um, funds. So even within low fee, it's been the absolute lowest fee uh, that have attracted inflows. I remember some years ago, Morningstar did this study. Now, their bread and butter is the star rating system. They do this this study that said if you can only know one thing about a fund, what should it be? And the answer was fee. If you just forget everything else, just buy the lowest fees, net net on average, you're going to end up with the best performance. And and to Morningstar's credit, not only did they publish it, it's still up on the website. You can go see it. It it sort of argues ignore the stars, just look at fees. But this an is academic. There's a whole bunch of academic research out there um, by, uh, that has been absolutely making making that point 
um, as well for a number of years. Uh, you know, uh, Professor Gruber down at NYU has published some of the Gruber uh, Gruber. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the seminal studies uh, on that as well, which and 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 others have. Um, he's not alone in that, but um, uh, re- that really kind of made the point that uh, fees, low fees, are one of the biggest predictors of future outperformance. Wow, that that that's pretty uh, that's pretty significant. Um, there's a line you have in in some of your notes, and and I just love this. I have to share this. Um, you must have the right dictionary. If a trader in an instant message writes, this is a dog with fleas, you need to know what they're really saying. Um, much less if they're saying, I'm doing market research. That just means they're watching YouTube videos. <laughs> so so what is, this is a dog with fleas means I don't want to touch this. I want nothing to do with it. Yeah, it means this is a bad stock. Don't, right. don't, don't, don't own it, right? Um, <laughs> you, you know, um, or yeah, it is trader speak for, you know, what are you doing? Market research. It's you're watching YouTube. Um, <laughs> where this comes up um, is that there's a whole new field in quite, in finance, uh, not that new, um, um, but it's really taken um, gained a lot of momentum over the last five, seven years of trying to understand text uh, and parsing text and trying to understand the meaning uh, within it and what people are saying. So whether it's reading earnings transcripts or reading annual reports um, or reading news in general, or from a compliance perspective, if you're just trying to read instant messages. Uh, And so the question is, how do you begin to understand context and what people are really saying? And so if you're reading trader speak, your dictionary of words to try to understand what a trader is saying is different than if you're reading a novel. So so let's talk a little bit about that because one of the questions I didn't get to had to do with machine learning and artificial intelligence, which and then throw in big data. These are burgeoning areas for research, not just for quant trading, but for everything. Big data is now devouring the whole world. How do you interact with artificial intelligence and machine learning when it comes to figuring out what is out in the world and translating it to an expressible investment theme? So- you know, I think this is a really exciting time to be a quant because the world is becoming more and more and more and more digitalized mm-hmm. every day. And we are able to get our hands on data sets as quantitative investors that we could only dream of, um, you know, five, seven years ago. And so the, the real question is then you have these huge data sets. How do you begin to process them uh, and look for signal? Uh, within them. Uh, and so you've really seen, to, to make that happen, you've had to have two other revolutions that have had to come along at the same time. One is that computing power, and in general, uh, hardware and software has had to just kind of go through a revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen that. Um, Exponential increases in computing, computing power, 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 power at the same time. I'm, the price just fell fell, the, fell off the cliff for storage, mm-hmm. right? So we can go to the web on you know AWS, Amazon Web Services, or Azure, or other places uh, out there, Google, um, uh, and you can buy you know terabytes, tens and tens and hundreds of terabytes of storage, uh, extraordinarily cheaply. Rent it when you're done, just kind of 
you know, that's it. That's all you need. Um, uh, you can have there's not we've moved now from uh, processing uh, power from processing on CPUs um, uh, in computers where everything had to be done in a hierarchical structure. Well, we've now rewritten the code so that everything can run in parallel um, and use GPUs, graphical so much, processing much units, faster. much faster, in tandem, cheaper. Um, hmm. And so you've seen exponential growth um, uh, in computing power that is really, really hard to overstate. Uh, and it's just been accelerating even the, over the past you know, 18 months. So we're, we're just beginning to understand and unlock the horizon here. And so this has allowed you to just process amounts of data um, that is hard to imagine. Uh, an example, um, there is a company out there that is now literally taking pictures of the entire globe every day mm -hmm. at three meter resolution. Wow. And storing that so you, data for you. You could say, see the tiniest changes anywhere. Right. Well, three meter resolution is what the law allows, mm -hmm. right? So a car. So, But you can tell whether that's a car or a bus, mm -hmm. right? Um, we can't see people. Um, um, but the storage on that is a Yodabyte. Wow. How big is a Yodabyte? It's a trillion terabytes. Wow. Right? So... How do you can now, now process that data, right? That requires a lot of computing power and a lot of storage capabilities. That's now economical to do, where five years ago, that was a pipe dream. That, that's amazing. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm familiar with Waze, which was bought by Google, which uses Android phones to, to look at traffic. I was just reading about a company that uses cell phone signals to identify actual foot traffic in malls. This is and, all true. And they identified way early that retail was in trouble before it was front page news. Amazon's doing this and this company's Sears is in trouble with that. They had figured it out. And it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to subscribe more. to these services. Sometimes more. Right? But you know, if you know two years in advance, hey, by the way, retail is about to fall off a cliff. You, it will pay for itself in, uh, in yeah, trading I mean, games. The data sets that, like I said, that are available are Amazing. really quite remarkable um, that people have in terms of literally where you your, your foot traffic, um, your credit card spending data, um, reading email receipts, um, Shocking. You, you know, th that, that are available. As you said, traffic data. Um, it's, there's really, if, you're, if, you, if there's a data set that you want um, and you don't think that you can get it, you're not looking hard enough uh, <laughs> at, at this point. Uh, we can track literally every bill of lading for every con cargo container that is coming into the United States, really at T plus one, tomorrow time. That's unbelievable. I, I, I can I can. I mean, the apps for this. planes are crazy the, that you could oh, see every plane in the sky, you can see where it, they're coming from, where they're going, what type of plane it is. You can ask Siri on your phone, tell me the planes that are above my head, and she'll tell you. Really? I'm going to have to try that. You know, you, you literally just ask Siri, what plane is above me? And she'll tell you the planes that, that literally are right above amazing. you. That's amazing. I mean, so, so all this data um, is, you know, what people are beginning to look at. Uh, and it's a bit of an arms race um, for everybody mm -hmm. to try to keep up with this um, and to try to understand what's out there and how you process it. Because there's probably no one data set that's going to give you 
the you know the holy grail of everything. It's really about how you take all these disparate data sets, combine them uh-huh. uh, in a thoughtful manner. That's really going to give you your answers uh, uh, to 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 do that. Interesting. All right, so I only have you for another ten or fifteen minutes. Let me get to my favorite questions. Uh oh. Well, I was going to ask you what's the most important thing people don't know about your background, but I suspect you've already answered that. Actually, I don't think I have. Oh, really? Uh, um, so it's not Springsteen. It's not Springsteen. Oh, Springsteen is very important to my background. Um, but people know who know you know that about People you. who know me know that. And actually, I, uh, Springsteen lyrics are always pretty much hidden somewhere in my notes. Oh, really? Like, like if you're a Springsteen fan and you read my notes, you'll capture. You'll find it. You'll find, another, you'll find a hidden Springsteen reference in there. Um, and sometimes they're not so subtle. Um but what people probably don't under- know about me is that I was very lucky um, to be born to two academics uh, mm-hmm. who teach at Columbia. Um, and my father was a professor, uh, I guess is, a professor of American social history and really kind of founded the field um, of American social history. Um, and taught me um, at a very young age uh, to be questioning and dubious of your sources. Um, and so uh, when I was 10, he dedicated a book to me, um, and it's called The Sources of American Social History. Uh, and it says to Matthew to, to understand that American history is more than the study of great people. Um, hmm. And it's a book of unconventional sources that try to study how institutions work um, and study history as a study of institutions, um, not as acts of Congress or acts of war or what great people are doing, but study the church, um, study the prison, study the hospital and the experience of people within those settings um, and understand the biases of these sources and look for unconventional sources. And so I like to think that that kind of training about data uh, mm-hmm. was embedded into me uh, at a very, very, very early age and looking for things um, and biases and things and being skeptical of the wisdom you're receiving, of what you're being told, um, how markets actually work, the players in them, all of that was really instilled at me from age 10 to 11. So you're at MIT, Darren Asimoglu is there, and yeah. he talks about the role of institutions in the economy and People shouldn't be looking at these big events or these Fed chiefs. You should be looking at these societal institutions. They have a much greater impact on things like economic inequality and recessions and cycles than does any one person or any one sort of event, very much along your dad's thinking. Along those lines. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... You know, I think, you know, I know one of your questions to me, uh, I don't mean to jump the gun on any of your questions, is favorite books. So uh, let, let's jump the gun. Let's, well, before we do that, let's, because I, 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 I'm anticipating the answer to who are your mentors. I have to assume your father was a mentor of yours. Based of course. Based on that. Of course. Of course. I mean, um, that's a little cliche to say mm-hmm. that your dad was a mentor. I well, mean, but, you I, know, I, I, someone I mean, dedicates a book and it, it obviously yes, resonated uh, with you. Oh, of course. Um, and my father was... Uh, absolutely influential in my life and my thinking and teaching me how to write and just taking a red pen to my writing and just, <laughs> um, you know, arguing with me about ideas. Who uh, else and, was and a mentor? A, um, I had a professor at college who was a huge mentor to me. I went to Brown uh, and Ed Beiser. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of independent studies with him who just grilled me on ethics and rigor of thought and uh, the law uh, and you know what are, what are rights versus non-constitutional rights and just took me under his wing and really shaped my thinking uh, uh, in, in, in many, many hard ways. Um, I think some of my other um, you know mentors, uh, you know, had to have been a guy by the name of Sid Brown, um, who's a prof- who was a professor at Columbia, who saw something in me when I was a master's student there. I wandered into uh, his graduate class, uh, graduate student class in stochastic calculus, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it was filled with PhD students and somehow I got the high grade. I'm still to this day not sure how I did that. And he took me under his wing um, and taught me a lot. And now he's a friend and colleague and just been a trusted um, kind of mentor and advisor throughout mm-hmm. my career. Um, and then there was a gentleman at uh, Lehman Brothers um, where I was much too young uh, in many ways to get the position I did as head of quant uh, uh, at, at How old at were Lehman. you at the time? Um, I had been in, uh, and I had been out of my PhD program all of five years. Oh, really? So you were a little green. Uh... I was a little green. And he threw me into as a managing director ahead of all the quantitative equity research at Lehman five years out of my PhD wow. program. Um, and so I was green. Um, I didn't quite you know, know how to behave with other senior managing directors and how that whole world worked. Um, and Ravi was absolutely you know, harsh um, uh, and brutal and, uh, to me, uh, but in the loving way. I was uh, one of Ravi's children is the way I described it. And um, uh, you know, he taught me how to grow up. Um, and how to behave uh, in a major world-class institution and what was expected of, of me. Not so much, in, I mean, he helped me on the quant, but really helped me mature as a manager um, uh-huh. and as a person uh, and how one carries oneself uh, in a role. And I remember kind of telling my team every day, like, I don't know what I did wrong um, this week uh, before my weekly meeting with Robbie, but but I'm about to go find out. And um, he I'll let you me, know on Monday. And I, no, no, I, no, and I, I, I found out. Um, uh, and he and, and it was painful at times. Um, but I absolutely love him for it. Um, and he made me such a better um, workplace person. Uh, you know, every day. And uh, you know, uh, it was it was hard at the time, but I I I adore him for taking that time and attention. Um, Everybody needs a Ravi, right? You, you know, if he's listening to this, you know, everyone needs their Matu. You know. <laughs> so let's talk. You mentioned books. Let's talk about some of your favorite books: fiction, nonfiction. What do you read for fun? What do you read for informational purposes? So uh, I love documentary photography. Uh, I, really, I am a huge fan uh, of that, and I collect. Um, uh, documentary photography books. Uh, I have a pretty extensive collection, um, and uh, I am always on the hunt for that new great documentary photography book, um, or and collecting the masters. Uh, uh, Give us uh, the name of, of a book for someone who has no experience with documentary photography but wants to explore the space. So you have to start post-world documentary photography with Robert Frank, um, The Americans. Um, that was an absolutely revolutionary book, um, along with Cartier-Bresson, The Decisive Moment. Um, and but, but, but Frank changed photography. Um, forever. Um, and then there comes a whole series of lesser known masters, um, but 
utter masters um, from, you know, Eugene Richards' work uh, uh, out there documenting um, poverty in America that is y- y- one has to be aware of and see um, uh, to the work like people of Ron Haviv that is just legendary. Um, his photographs were actually submitted into the War Crimes Tribunal wow. uh, uh, in The Hague um, documenting the atrocities, um, uh, you know, that happened in the... Um, you know, in, in, in what was Yugoslavia, um, you know, just the mo- some of the most important work. There's work by people like Don McCullen, the legendary British war photographer, documenting the atrocities in Biafra and Vietnam and around the world. Um, heroic people. Um, Tim Hetherington uh, doing work that unfortunately he died um, covering uh, in, in Africa and Libya. And these are just, um, you know, moving work. Of course, the work by Robert Kappa, the legendary war photographer who was in the first wave of the boats um, coming off of D-Day. Um, so just... Um, very, very, very powerful work. And there are people who are still doing this work today um, uh, out there that just don't get any love uh, and attention. People like Alex Webb uh, at Magnum, Ed Kashi um, uh, at, you know, Seven. Uh, there's, I don't, I'm, I'm just missing people. J- James Nockway, uh, you know, a, a, a truly legendary figure. Give me figure. a list and I'll make sure it gets included with, uh, with just, the post just, on this. I, I could go on. I have hundreds and hundreds, thousands How about something of thousands a little, of books. something a little lighter than, than documentary like many photography? What else, what else do you read? What do you read for enjoy for just pure relaxation? Um, you know, you're talking to a guy who just loves quant and loves okay. doing quant finance. Um, I'm really into the work right now by a guy by the name of Jaron Lanier. Um, he's the philosopher in chief um, at Microsoft. Uh, oh, okay. I knew the name sounded yeah, familiar. Yeah, and he's ri- written this great book called You Are Not a Gadget. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he's really thinking very hard about the role of human beings and artificial intelligence mm-hmm. uh, in this big data world. Um, there's just great stuff uh, to read uh, uh, out there. Um, there's other work, uh, a great book called Behave by Richard Soplowski. Um, Some, it's, it's a big book. It's a big book. Somebody Don't else get, recommended it, and I actually picked it up not too long ago. You know, just really, I mean, it's not light stuff, um, but it's really beginning to explain how, what is, you know, get into these arguments of what is nature versus what is mm-hmm. nurture and how do we learn and how do human beings change behavior um, and, you know, how inbred is things like violence uh, uh, into our societies or not. And studies, examples coming from um, baboons and how baboons learn. And you think baboons are very, um, uh, have this ingrained, but they reach these tipping points where societies really change. And so um, really getting uh, uh, at, at, at this work, um, that's, that's just fascinating. Uh, any any fiction or is it strictly? Oh no, I love fiction. Uh, I'm a huge uh, fan of Paul Auster. Um, What's the book? Uh, oh, he's written this great series of books, his starting books out there called the New York Trilogy. But he's written a great book called Invisible, and he kind of again, it's kind of postmodernist fiction. Um, where uh-huh. you always kind of have to figure out what's the story. He writes them as detective stories, but they're much deeper than that. I love the stories by Raymond Carver. I wish I could ever write like Raymond Carver's short stories or Richard Ford, um, the poetry of Marie Howe. Um, you know, it's what the living do is amazing. Um, you know, there's uh, so there's just a, a, a lot of these uh, just wonderful books uh, uh, out there. You're, you're on a lot of planes. I am, um, but you just find time to read. Well, if if you if you want to read a book, you have to carve out a specific time. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. There are too many other distractions. Yeah, so, you know the TV. You know, just keep the TV off. Don't get addicted to this, the this Law and a, Order SVU. Actually, read this a book. is a good list. I think people are going to have some good feedback about this. 
Um, so we've talked about the arc of quant and how it's changed. Um, so I don't know if I have to ask you what's changed since you joined the industry, but what might be a little more insightful for listeners is what changes do you see just beginning to happen now? What are the next major shifts that are already underway and, and we're just not aware of them? Um, I think it's really this quant 3.0, um, as, as I call it, which is really beginning to understand these disparate data sources that are out there and how we begin to use them and incorporate them into an investment process. Uh, and you know, where, you know, where that data is useful and where that data isn't useful. And I think a little bit of what's been happening in the industry has been putting the horse before the cart, where there is this explosion of data, as we were talking about. And at this point, it's just so cool. Like you can literally, if you can imagine it, you can get the data for it. Um, but we also need to slow down and start thinking about it from an investor's perspective of what is the data that I need that's going to help me with solve my investment controversy um, and kind of turn things back on its head. Um, and that's what I'm hoping the industry will start to do and not just be data for data's sake and just consuming these vast amounts of it mm -hmm. um, and warehousing it, but really think what's the, what's, what's the crux of the question? What's the controversy? And then how do I go and get that data? Um, and, and that can be in so many different forms of how do I read text that I want to figure out what are people talking about? Um, how do I read, um, how do I understand body language from reading the text of an earnings transcript? Really? How do I infer even like big questions in natural language processing is how do I look at double negatives or triple negatives? How do I begin to infer what you mean versus what you actually said? Like we can do that as humans. Sometimes, and, sometimes the written word, word like uh, on uh, not that Twitter is has anything to do with re the real world, but I noticed that sarcasm or snark very often gets lost in the written word from from some intentions. It does, um, and that's what makes email dangerous as a form of communication mm -hmm. and why sometimes it's better to pick up your, instead of writing an email or if you're getting upset at an email, to actually pick up the phone and ask your colleague, what do you mean? Let's, let's have a quick conversation before you hit the send uh -huh. snarky reply back to them because they may have meant something totally different and right. you're not getting it. Like, so we, if like, people well, have difficulty interpreting the actual written words, can machines do what humans in this case can't do with human not language? Not today. Not today, but that's the frontier of where we're moving, huh. right? And that's what we have to do. We have machines today have trouble with just double negatives or triple negatives. It wasn't a great quarter, but it was okay. And it exceeded our expectations, which were fairly modest. Right. Get a machine to parse that. Right, you know, it sounds like all those clauses sort of contradict each one before them. Right, and getting to like you know what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Get the machine to parse the full context well, of that sentence. See the context very, of that sentence very is, hard. I don't want to own that company. Maybe, <laughs> maybe depends upon what you want to do or not. Right, you know, get a machine to know that when inflation comes in higher than expectations sure. in Japan, right, mm -hmm. that's a good thing. As, well, in the present deflationary environment, sure. That's right. So you have to teach machines context. You have to teach them nuance. You have to teach them the ability to understand when this is bad here but not bad there. It's the that's, same exact thing. That's right. 
That's wow. that's the frontier. Um, and and that's all done through models, teaching mo- models, setting up models, models for this to work within. That's right. Now, I, I'm not saying that we're there uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Please don't mishear me on that. But I'm saying that's where we're headed, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's the frontier. That's and, fascinating. And, and it's quest- the question is how quickly with this explosion um, in you know kind of processing power and all the text and all these things that are being digitalized, will we get there? Hmm. Interesting. I, I kind of feel like I asked you this question. Tell me uh, about a time you failed because you described the so so succinctly the the quant crash in 07. But is that a fair question? Uh, tell us uh, about a time you failed and, and what you learned from it. You know, um, if you go back and actually read my third grade report card. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it Amazingly, talk about someone who hasn't really learned a lot from third grade um, uh, or changed their behavior. My third grade teacher said, Matthew always turns in his homework assignments late, but when he does, it far, su- far surpasses our expectations. Do, do you still have a, uh, a problem with tardiness? Is that an ongoing um, life I've gotten much better. Uh, um, but you know, the, what I've had to learn over time is, as one of my bosses has put it, is not let the better be the, you know, the, the enemy. enemy of the perfect, right? There right. You're you the perfect, be the enemy of the better, excuse me. So, um, and so, you know, I, you know, get out version one, get out version two, get out version three. What was Iterate. The, the great technology line is, um, good programmership. Is that the, uh, yes. So, so. I see people are coming into the studio. Before we get thrown out of here, let me ask my two favorite questions. If a millennial or some recent college graduate were to come up to you and say, hey, I'm thinking about going into quantitative research uh, in finance, what sort of advice would you give them? Program. Mm-hmm. Program, program, program. Much more than statistics, applied mathematics, nope. calculus. So, so, the, so the thing that I want, if, if I'm looking for my ideal candidate, mm-hmm. they need to know how to program. They need to know how to, to, to do statistics and econometrics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they need to know finance, right? And they need to be curious. Um, I can't teach you how to program, right? I've tried to take people who added those other characteristics and teach them how to program, Doesn't utter work. failure. Right. Um, um, but you know how you also get people who are curious and skeptical and skeptical of their own work. I think that's the biggest thing. Like realize that you're going to make mistakes and find the errors in your work before I find them. That's, um, that's really interesting. And our final question, uh-oh. what is it that you know about quantitative investing today that you wish you knew 15 or 20 years ago? You know, I guess I, I, I have a, you know, my, my, my short answer to that is people need a much healthier respect for that a fact that it's a model and it's going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and understand that even the best models that are actually true um, or have very good uh, performance are going to go through periods of, un- of big underperformance. And that doesn't mean you get rid of the model. Um, you know, how do you diversify across those models uh, and kind of, you know, work through those periods, I think is the biggest thing that everyone who's trying to invest in quant and really kind of has appreciation for. Hmm. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Matthew Rothman. He is the head of Quantitative Equity Strategies at Credit Suisse. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the 150 or so such conversations that we have had previously. 
We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs for helping to produce the show and set up these interviews. Michael Batnick is our head of research. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer. Who is our recording engineer today? Caroline O'Brien. Thank you, Caroline, for filling in last minute. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.